Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, strengthen us by thy word and by thy spirit, that we may be more than conquerors through him that loved us, that in this dark and troubled world we may move with the peace and victory of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Our subject today is the ancient hymn, Te Deum Laudamus, T-E, capital D-U-M, Laudamus, L-A-U-D-A-M-U-S. And our scripture, Philippians 4, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved, and longed for my joy and crown. So stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech you, Odious, and beseech Syntyche, that they may be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. The early church took very seriously Paul's words that they were summoned to rejoice. And they faced a world that was hostile and persecuted them with a tremendous sense of confidence and joy. This was especially infuriating to the opposition. And the Roman Empire, as it dealt with this little minority whose future seemed so bleak, whom they slaughtered at will, the Roman Empire faced these Christians with irritation and anger. How dared they be filled with so much confidence and joy when Rome could destroy them and was destroyed. But the Christians had cause even in the midst of their suffering, even in the midst of martyrdom, for joy. All around them, they could see the growing collapse of naked, unadulterated humanism. And this made the alternative Orthodox Christianity seem all the more clearly man's only hope. As against the bleakness of humanism, they had the faith in the triune God, their creator and their savior. As against the vagueness and uncertainty of humanism, they had the certainty of scripture. As against the pessimism of humanism, they had a sure hope in Jesus Christ. The world around them was a bleak one. And even with their suffering, even with martyrdom, what they had was so far superior 
that they could rejoice. They faced the persecutions of the empire and of paganism. And in the years that followed the so-called recognition of Christianity, they faced the persecution by the Aryans, the humanists who had taken over and who claimed to be the true church. But they still had a joyous faith, knowing the sure word of God. This triumphant faith, firmly grounded on the creedal victories, on the apostles' and Nicene creeds, found expression in the hymn Te Deum. It is a hymn of triumph and a creedal faith against heresies. And it echoes the battles of the church against Gnosticism, Arianism, persecution against all its enemies. The roots of the TDM are in the Bible, in the Gloria Patri, and in early hymns of the church, many portions of the TDM being in the apostolic constitutions. And it reached its present form in the 300s during the time of the Nicene and Constantinopolitan councils. The hymn, one of the greatest of all hymns and once the most familiar hymn in the church today, is used in rather limited circles. It still is a part of the liturgy of one or two churches. It is in the Episcopal Book of Common Prayer, but is used less and less frequently. The hymn reads, We praise thee, O God. We acknowledge thee to be the Lord. All the earth doth worship thee, the Father everlasting. To thee all angels cry aloud, the heavens and all the powers therein. To thee cherubim and seraphim continually do cry, Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth, heaven and earth are full of the majesty of thy glory. The glorious company of the apostles praise thee. The goodly fellowship of the prophets praise thee. The noble army of martyrs praise thee. The holy church throughout all the world doth acknowledge thee, the father of an infinite majesty, by an adorable, true, and only son also the Holy Ghost, the Comforter. Thou art the King of glory, O Christ. Thou art the everlasting Son of the Father. When thou tookest upon thee to deliver man, thou didst humble thyself to be born of a virgin. When thou hadst overcome the sharpness of death, thou didst open the kingdom of heaven to all believers. Thou sittest at the right hand of God in the glory of the Father. We believe that thou shalt come to be our judge. We therefore pray thee, help thy servants whom thou hast redeemed with thy precious blood. Make them to be numbered with thy saints in glory everlasting. O Lord, save thy people and bless thine heritage. Govern them and lift them up forever. Day by day we magnify thee, and we worship thy name ever, world without end. Vouchsafe, O Lord, to keep us this day without sin, 
O Lord, have mercy upon us, have mercy upon us. O Lord, let thy mercy be upon us as our trust is in thee. O Lord, in thee have I trusted. Let me never be confounded. The Deum, as you can see, rings with a fierce joy in the faith. It is a triumphant fighting hymn. The Tideum can be summarized as having three parts. The first part is an act of praise to God by us and by all creation. The second part is a confession of faith with two portions. First, a general consent to it. And second, the particulars of it, that is, what we believe. The third portion of the Tideum is a prayer, a supplication grounded upon this faith. And the first part of the prayer is for all his people, that they may be preserved here and saved eternally. And second, more personally, a prayer for ourselves who praise him, that we may be kept from future sin pardoned for past sins because we trust in him. There are several characteristics of the TDM which are very clearly in evidence in this hymn. First, the TDM affirms the orthodox faith. This is the answer to the question of those who say the councils represented the theologians of the church. These were the learned men debating and resolving things, but this did not have roots in the common people of the church. The Tideum is the answer to that. Because the Tideum was the popular hymn of the church. It was the hymn that expressed the faith of the common people. And the Tideum is the creed set to music. It is the creed expanded into a hymn. And the popularity of the hymn witnesses to the popularity of the true faith. And it is easy to understand the popularity. Here is no vague talk as with Arianism about the great monad being God, the ultimate, the first monad nor a God who has no self-consciousness and is not a person but is the silent God. Here is the reality of a personal God who is our personal Savior. And these certainties ring out in the hymn and they rang out in the minds and voices of the people of the early centuries. A second characteristic of the Tideum is this. Although the Orthodox believers were a minority, a minority is against the pagans and a persecuted minority is against the Aryans. They sang the Tideum in confident joy that the true believer is always in the vast majority 
in God's universe. All the earth doth worship thee, the heavens and all the powers therein. Heaven and earth are full of the majesty of thy glory. The Didium echoes Psalm 19, which states, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. The whole creation moved in terms of God's will. How then could the believers, even if they were a handful, be in a minority? They were in God's majority. The enemy had only a silent God, a dead God. They had a self-revealing God, creator of heaven and earth. The enemy had the power of the Caesars, to be sure. But theirs was the power of the God of every Caesar. And this God had through Jesus Christ died for them and would also care for them. Thou art the King of glory, O Christ. The third characteristic of the Pideum comes out in the concluding sentence. Let me never be confounded. This is an amazing prayer, and it is the culmination of the Tideum. Nothing seemed more startling from the perspective of a pagan and more infuriating. How did anyone dare pray that way? The most obvious fact to any pagan was that life, the God, History, circumstances perpetually move to confound men. Three words sum up the philosophy of the ancient world and of all men today apart from Christ. You can't win. This was their attitude. You can't win. The odds are against you. Sooner or later you're going to be dead. There's no rhyme nor reason to life. You can't win. Life is going to confound you. This is their faith. And here are these Christians concluding a joyful hymn with the words, confident words, let me never be confounded. This was incredible. And it was infuriating. Because people have in their sin a constant desire if I'm going to be miserable then all men must be miserable what right does anyone have to be happy the venerable Bede in his book on ecclesiastical history of England describes the coming of the first missionaries to England. And he reports a kind of incident which took place then and elsewhere and has taken place even to our times on the mission field. Now, incidents of this sort have, from the lives of the early saints, been expanded on and a great many legends created concerning them. But, the substratum of truth is definitely there. What was it? 
It was the fact that these, these missionaries moved out into the far parts of the world, into strange and unknown places, into the wildernesses. They moved out in the absolute confidence that God was with them, that the God who created all things and who predestinated all things had a purpose for them and he would care for them until their appointed time. And therefore they need not fear. And so it was that very often the wild animals themselves were at peace with them to the amazement of pagans. And in recording such events in the light of St. Cuthbert, Bede said, For it is no wonder that the very creature should obey his wishes who so faithfully obeyed the great author of all creatures. But we, for the most part, have lost our dominion over the creation that has been subjected to us because we neglect to obey the Lord and Creator of all things. The early church saw the issue clearly. To be a Christian means, the Orthodox party saw, restoration into Adam's lost dominion and kingship over the earth. And such a faith makes for a magnificent confidence in the face of all things men and wild animals alike. And in this confidence they moved out. And the pagans were overawed by it. In fact, in England, in 627, when King Edwin's advisors successfully urged the adoption of Christianity, they did it not because any of them were Christians, but for very pragmatic reasons. They said that, literally, it contains something more certain. It seems justly to deserve to be followed. And so for that pragmatic reason, England adopted Christianity. These people had a certainty, they had a sense of victory, a sense of confidence in the face of all things. They knew what they believed. They were not moving in a strange and hostile world, but in God's world. And so King Edwin and his counselors decided, this is for us. This kind of faith gives men power. <coughs> Let me never be confounded. An amazing prayer in terms of humanism and paganism. But the hymn here reflects the scriptures. David again and again utters this prayer. For example, in Psalm 22, 5, They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded. Again in Psalm 69, 6, David prays that those who follow him, even as he follows God, will not be confounded. Let not them that wait on thee, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed for my sake. 
Let not those that seek thee can be confounded for my sake, O God of Israel. In many, many psalms, David prayed for the confounding of the ungodly. And in many others rejoiced that God was the one who confounded the ungodly over and over and over again in history and would do so again. St. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 1.27, declared, God hath chosen the foolish things of the world, that is, us. We who in the eyes of the unbelieving are foolish for believing as we do. God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, those who think they have the wisdom. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world, for we are weak in the sight of the world, to confound the things which are mighty. The hymn sings with a confidence that God will spare his saints from confounding and use them to confound the powers of this world. The fourth characteristic of the Tideum is that it declares the mighty agent of this confounding is the King of Glory, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. He is our great judge, our Savior, and our present help. He is the incarnate one who experienced all things man experiences, including, as the Tideum declares, the sharpness of death. Therefore, he understands our every feeling and undertakes for us. The Didium was thus a victory song by men who were under fire but confident of their destiny in Jesus Christ. It is a triumphant expression of orthodox creedalism and it was a battle-tested church which sang confidently. Didium Lodimus, we praise thee, O God. Let us pray. We praise thee, O God, that thou art he who deliverest thy saints age after age. That thou didst deliver thy saints in the days of old, David, Moses, and the prophets, and did confound the workers of evil. And thou art he who didst deliver the saints of the early church. We thank thee, our Father, that thy power is unchanged still. And so, our God, we come to praise thee, to rejoice that thou art God, that the King of glory is our Savior, and that we have the certainty that thou wilt deliver us, and that we shall not be confounded. Our God, we praise thee and thank thee. In Jesus' name, Amen. Are there any questions now? Yes. Do you feel that there are
Yes, we know there are martyrs today, that there are people who have died for the faith behind the Iron Curtain from Central Europe through China. Countless numbers, and in Africa as well. They are being martyred for the faith. And of course, the word martyr, we must remember, means witness, literally. So that, in the strict original sense of the word, whenever we suffer for the faith to any degree, we are martyrs. The martyrs of the early church, many of them died for the faith, and there are those who are dying for it today. But all who witness for the faith and suffer for the faith in any degree are martyrs. And the Judeum says, the noble army of martyrs. Praise thee. Yes. Did uh, John Knox ever meet uh, in Calvin? Yes, he was in Geneva for a time and sat under Calvin's uh, ministry. He went to Geneva and there absorbed the faith firsthand before he went to Scotland. Yes. Speaking of confusing, I wonder if you read an article on the paper the other day about some physician who was having a seminar or something, and Dr. Greenblatt was... Um, Yes, well, he is far from original. This story about Paul supposedly being an epileptic is over a hundred years old, and it was invented uh, by a number of scholars who were out to prove that there was no truth to the Bible, that uh, Jesus was totally a myth, and Paul was an epileptic who had wild dreams and therefore uh, created Christianity and so on. A lot of nonsense. I think anyone who repeats these is self-condemned. They are making a fool of themselves and revealing that only one thing motivates them, hatred. They described him as the father of a medical hair and gold. Yes. Uh, back to this, uh, you can't win Are they breaking with this philosophy of you can't win? 
Well, of course, in the Roman Empire, they also believed that they were going to create a heaven on earth. The answer to that is that humanistic man is basically schizophrenic. He, on the one hand, professes that this is the great and brave new world he's going to create. On the other hand, he moves suicidally in all that he does. So that the more he dreams about destroying everything that makes for death and for defeat, the more he courts everything that does. Now, we are talking today, as in no generation in recent times, about defeating all the problems that confront man. But have we ever worked more zealously to create problems that are destined to defeat man? This is the insanity of humanism. We are doing deliberately those things which are going to ensure the destruction of our hopes. Uh, along with my Philly was saying the other day that they're going to uh, <clears throat> find a way to do away with the common house fly because they can't seem to find one single thing that it does that's good. So why have it? <laughs> so what I was wondering, does the Bible speak about this? I mean, let's say that, that one could eliminate a certain animal or a snake or an insect or something. Uh, perhaps these things work together, all of them, every single one of them, in a plan that... Uh, right. Well, there was an article on the common housefly in the Scientific American in the past year, and the authors admitted that uh, they hadn't found any convincing evidence yet that the housefly is guilty of all the things charged to it. They were sure it must be, but so far they haven't turned it up. On the common housefly in the Scientific American in the past year, and the authors admitted that uh, they hadn't found any convincing evidence yet that the housefly is guilty of all the things charged to it. They were sure it must be, but so far they haven't turned it up. So they were unwilling to acquit him, but they couldn't indict him. So the poor housefly, apart from being a nuisance, doesn't have too uh, serious an indictment against it as things stand now. Yes? Well, uh, the eggs uh, turn into maggots and uh, if you have nothing around you're wounded, uh, put some maggots in the wound and it'll uh, sterilize them. Yes. One thing good. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I mean, any port in the store, that's why I'm <laughs> Yes. On a slightly different uh, point, I noticed in some of the uh, new uh, versions of the Bible that the word charity is now changed to love. Um, from my uh, connotation, I would feel that charity has much more uh, of a meaning than actually the simple word of love. Um, uh, yes, that raises a very uh, difficult question of uh, translation. In a sense, it is a justifiable translation, but it is a confusing one. Now, the word charity is from the Vulgate translation because the original King James Version as well as the Douay both had charity rather than love because they were influenced by the Vulgate which gave it as caritas. 
Now, the Vulgate, however, was a translation of the Greek Testament. Now, the Greek Testament, where it reads Caritas, actually has agape, and sometimes philia, two different words. Now, the word actually is love in the Greek, but there are three Greek words for love. Two of them are used in the Bible or in the New Testament, which is the Greek portion. One is eros, from whence we get the word erotic and eroticism. This is not used in the Bible. The second is phileo, from whence we get the word Philadelphia. Phil, a love, Adelphos, brother, city of brotherly love. Now, this is often used in the Bible, and it means the human kind of love which we have for our family, our children, for one another. The third word which is used was a word which is a strange word. It was in the Greek but had practically no uh, usage. It is almost, some scholars have said, as though the word were prepared and waiting for the Bible to come along when it had its first real usage. And that means agape, the divine love, divine grace, which reaches out to undeserving man. Now, it could be rendered as charity, but charity has the connotation of something human. Charity is something we exercise one towards another. But that's the trouble with the word love, too. So while it's originally love in the original, uh, again, love in the English, there's only one word for three words in the Greek. So love as it is in the Bible can absorb the wrong kind of meaning of eros and philia. It could be rendered also, in a sense, as grace. This perhaps might be the best. It isn't literally the same word as grace, but it is closer in meaning to grace than it is to love and to uh, charity. This is a problem in biblical translation that is a tremendous one. In most cases, English has been uh, remolded and remade so that it has become an excellent language for conveying the biblical words and ideas, except at this crucial point. This is the one, almost the one problem case. There are a few others, but this is the basic one. But you can see what a problem it makes in translating the Bible into many languages today where the people have no background of uh, Christianity, where the language very often doesn't even have a word for God, let alone grace and uh, charity, for example, a host of words for which there's absolutely nothing in these languages. This has been a problem, for example, even in such cultures, well, especially in China. 
China is such a relativistic culture, it's been very difficult to translate many of the biblical words into uh, Chinese. This is true also of Japanese. And sometimes it leads to uh, very grave difficulties as they translate and find that the word has connotations they never understood. Uh, a little humorous sideline on that, not with translation of the Bible, but uh, speaking. A missionary who went to Japan began to preach at a service and he was anxious to show off his command of uh, uh, Japanese. He had studied very extensively and he was distressed that the uh, women who are very quiet normally were beginning to titter and giggle and the men were vastly uh, delighted and amused. And when he ended, he found out that he was speaking of Christ as their savior of sins, but actually he was saying, because the two words sin and wife were so similar, tsumi and suma, he was saying Christ was saving them from their wives. <laughs> but uh, translation is a problem, and it is hard to know what to do in this particular case, what the proper answer would be. Yes. Uh, to go back to uh, the uh, statement about Paul, um, recently I ran into a surprising interpretation of the, of the life of Luther. A well-informed friend declared to me that Luther was uh, a little insane. And I never run across this before. And I stated to her that I thought probably it was some author that she read that uh, who naturally would want to downgrade him. Is there a, a current uh, belief about Oh, that? yes. You see, all of the uh, great men of the church, as well as the great figures of the Bible, have been subjected to this. There's been quite an extensive body of literature, and one considerable book as well from the Freudian perspective written to prove that uh, Luther uh, was characterized by anal fixation and that everything in Luther's life and theology is to be interpreted in terms of anal fixation. Now it is the weirdest kind of uh, literature imaginable and all you can say is that there is fixation in the minds of the writers. But uh, it, is, uh, it is fantasy. But this kind of literature, uh, there's a vast body of it. And there have been uh, books written to demonstrate from the psychiatric point of view that Jesus was insane. And uh, Schweitzer wrote a defense of the mental health of Jesus, Albert Schweitzer, which uh, leaves him, I think, in a sorrier state than the critics did. Uh, yes? Yes. 
Yes, and so much of uh, the material is so thoroughly manufactured today, out of whole cloth. If you stand in terms of Christian orthodoxy and conservatism today, you can be sure you are going to be abused and slandered if you acquire any position of prominence in such a stand or if you aggravate anyone around you for such a stand. This is a certainty. Right. But they were good and godly men, and the faults that are ascribed to them definitely were not there. Luther was a marvelous and lovable man. He certainly was not guilty of these weird things that are ascribed to him. And the same is true of Calvin, the same is true of Athanasius, the same is true of Augustine, of a host of great men of the church. Yes? Uh, Would you uh, explain something about uh, the junkers and who they still exist and were they normal? change from that religious side to Unitarianism? Is there a connection? No. The uh, Dunkards are one of the Anabaptist groups from uh, two or three centuries ago. There still are Dunkards in, I believe, the Middle West. But it is not normal for them to become Unitarians. Yes. Uh, just a little aside, what we're going to talk about this. All fits in. Well, last time we were talking about uh, history, or one time recently, and uh, I often have puzzled in my mind that this business of uh, history will prove it as right or wrong. Now, uh, I heard uh, finally make the statement that history depends on who was writing it. And to a certain extent, there, uh, he was right because. Uh, you know a lot of things that you read that's where you were actually witness as soon as it started because you can't hardly recognize yourself. So yes. How are they going to pick the, 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 the truth from the uh, untruth as time goes on? It's more obscure all time, isn't it? Except as you go to the original sources. Now, the problem, of course, of our time is that humanism is busy rewriting all of history. And as a result, history is and has been for a century at least, very markedly for a century and much longer than that, in, uh, but on a gradual rate, been subjected to a rewriting. We do have the original documents of men such as, for example, the uh, councils, the church fathers, we have their records of the events, the minutes of meetings, so we can get to an accurate writing of history. But uh, this is not what men are interested in. Well, that brings up, uh, in those days, uh, there wasn't as much, uh, I mean, in past, 
than distortion, but I mean, unless it's generative now. That's and right. If you go back to the source, you depend on being somewhat accurate. If you go back yeah. to the source now, you don't know just exactly uh, what is the source. Exactly. For instance, the uh, Kennedy assassination that stirred up an awful horror, uh, and uh, they claim that uh, the Lincoln assassination stirred up as much of one is. That's right, and I would know. Yes, what you've had increasingly in the past few generations is a deliberate suppression of evidence. Previously, there often would be bitter factionalism, but now there is the deliberate suppression of evidence. So, in many respects, it's harder to know, far harder to know what's going on today than it is to know what happened a thousand and two thousand years ago. I'd like to uh, read something now to you in the remaining minutes. This week I was in Bakersfield speaking at a luncheon at the Americanism Center, and before that I was for an hour and 40 minutes on the call-in radio program Open Line, and I found that vastly interesting and delightful. The announcer who was conducting the program, Don G., is a good man, and it was quite uh, entertaining. We were talking about education. And uh, he took uh, a little time to describe one of his experiences. He said his oldest child is a girl five years old in kindergarten. The child was disappointed on going to school because she expected to learn how to read. So he sat down and taught her. So she reads. And he has been given all kinds of static by the school administration. Supposedly, he has done something terrible. A child at that age, he is told, cannot learn how to read. It uh, warps the child uh, and stunts it and so on and so forth. And he said, now, this is a curious thing. He said, you know, I was a commercial pilot until two years ago, and I may go back into it. I got weary of being away from home so much and that's why I stepped out for a time. But he said, I have my own plane and I fly regularly and from the time my little girl could walk, I took her up. And now at the age of five, she can take that plane up, fly it around and land it herself. But they tell me she's too young to learn how to read. (laughs) Now, One of the women there brought me the teacher's edition of, I believe it's the first grade reader, Our Town. And she said, take it and read it, and you'll see what is being done to the morality of our children. Now, here is one story that I think is short enough and yet revealing enough to give you the idea. The Funny Little Man. One morning, a funny little man was hurrying down the road. He was dressed all in yellow from his hat to his shoes. He sang and sang and sang, I am a little man, I am, I am, I am, but I can do anything I can, I can, I can. The little man met a hen. Why are you singing that, asked the hen. You cannot do what I can do. The hen made a nest of grass. She sat down on the nest, and soon there was an egg in it. 
The little man sat on the nest. When the hen was not looking, he took a ball out of his pocket. He let the ball drop into the nest. Look at that egg. He said it is five times as big as yours. Next, the little man met a cat. The cat was playing with a ball. First she hit it this way, then she hit it that way. Once she hit it too far, she had to go and look for it. Why look, said the little man, why not make the ball find you? Sit down and I will show you how. When the cat was not looking, he took an orange from his pocket. Here is your ball, he said. See, I made it find me. The little man came to a house. I hear a happy sound, he said. I hear the sound of someone fixing dinner. Then he looked in the window and saw a girl at work. He saw her put an orange, an egg, and some milk on the table. Why don't you have some cookies for dinner, too, asked our friend. If you will let me come in and sit down, I will make them for you. The girl let the little man come in and sit down. He put his hat on the table, and he said, Bring me five eggs, bring me five oranges, bring me five peanuts. I will make the cookies in my hat. I can make them faster that way. The little man put the oranges, eggs, and peanuts into his hat. Then he put on the hat. They will be ready soon, he said. When the girl was not looking, he took two cookies from his pocket. The cookies are ready, he said. Why don't you eat one today and one tomorrow? I saw you take those cookies out of your pocket, said the girl. Give me back all of those eggs and oranges and peanuts. If you don't, I will hit you with one of my shoes. But the little man did not hear. He was much too far away by that time, much too far. And he sang as he ran with his dinner in his hat, I can do anything, I can, I can, I can. Now, this little man who is called our friend, of course, is a good con man. Then in the guided reading uh, suggestions for discussion, uh, the children are to uh, say what made the little man funny. And... uh, so on and so forth. Why did he sing as he ran? Which trick was the funniest? Which person or animal was the silliest? In other words, this little man, our friend, is to give them a standard and they are to judge these other people in terms of the conduct of our our friend, the little man. Now for little children this is a very plain indoctrination into something that we cannot call biblical morality this is from the reader our town what I think it is Allen and Bacon yes the Sheldon basic reading series what year? 1957. No, I mean, what the school? First grade and still in use. The first reader program. Was there any discussion of the land of the free? What's that? The book, The Land of the Free, was there any discussion about that on the program? Oh, yes. And uh, I pointed out exactly what is taking place today, namely that Max Rafferty is threatening the Pasadena School Board that if they will not adopt it, he is going to sue them. And I think it is significant that a liberal, Herb Kane in San Francisco, when he reported it, concluded with this observation, land of the free, question mark. Why is Max Rafferty doing that? Is he uh, being forced to No, 
Max Rafferty is one of the few genuine, honest civil rights champions in the state of California. He has criticized the civil rights movement for its excesses more plainly than others, but he has approved of it more than others as well. This is an honest conviction on his part. And the book, of course, is written from the civil rights revolution perspective. It was written to order at the request of the State Board of Education to fulfill that function. It does it beautifully. He is therefore for it. Now, you may think he is wrong here, but uh, I do believe he believes this as other politicians do not. I think also he is very wrong at this point. Oh yes, their record is clear cut. And a humanistic perspective. It is a very beautifully written book, as I've said before, and it will be deadly in its effect. A number of school districts are hostile to it. The Bakersfield district, I understand, is against the book, but they are going to be compelled to use it. And it does not look as though the present administration is going to do anything to prevent it from adoption. Oh, but we don't have any civil rights. Do you remember the time that uh, uh, Lafferty studied, I think, with James B. Thomas and Neal, something together? No, I don't know anything about that. Uh, I can't remember the date, the time that this happened. I think it was with James B. Thomas, and I think it was with Well. I don't know that, but I think we can rejoice in this. What this book is doing is to settle more clearly the destiny of the public schools. There is going to be a major exodus because this book is a little too raw for many, many parents. And in every area there is an increasing interest in private education, in Christian education, in parochial schools, in rebellion against the implications of this book, because it is such open indoctrination. The um, indictment that I saw against this book was even more serious was the fact that there was no uh, in they, the authors admit that they spent a tremendous amount of time on the early history of the country, but they gave no um, description of uh, our form of government. Uh, in fact, they even left out the phrase of the Declaration of Independence, which uh, shows that our government is uh, based on the right. What they do is to take the civil rights revolution and go back to the pilgrims and read everything from that time to the present in terms of the civil rights revolution. So naturally there's no place for the Christianity of early uh, colonial and constitutional America. 
There is nothing for the uh, limited powers concept of government. No room. It's all in terms of statism. The great uh, friend of man is the all-powerful state. This shows from beginning to end. It would be possible to write ten volumes correcting the errors of the book because its perspective is so warped. But it is uh, the textbook of the state now for eighth graders. And there's no getting around that. I see no possibility of it being uh, withdrawn. That's how crazy are we going to get before things break down. I was reading the morning paper about the, uh, the uh, flat house in uh, Cape Town and they restricted everybody to vote because of African, what you call it, a thing. And uh, then uh, we see college professors doing research on the stupidest things in the national. I mean, I could imagine what my wife would say, I was doing research on that, and they what your husband's doing. <laughs> That's very true. It's getting more and more absurd. And it will continue until it breaks down. Because as long as people are finding that this feeds them and makes them rich, they'll go along with it. That's the sad fact. And it's going to have to fall apart before they wake up. And it will. And they'll find then that they've been fed not the bread of life, but stones. There's a good verse in the scriptures that to a sinner the bread of deceit is sweet in the mouth, but afterwards it shall be as gravel under one's teeth. And that's the way it shall be. Uh, uh, her, speaking of education, uh, Harvey Cox told a, a group this week that um, uh, we'd have to rearrange our standards because there were so many uh, youngsters were dropping out because uh, they couldn't uh, actually get enough of the, of the new morality. He didn't say it in those words, but that's what he meant. Yes. Well, I think it is significant that the state in the Union, which has the least problem of discipline in the schools, is New Mexico. Now, it isn't that they have a superior population, but it is this. Unless they've changed it in the last year or two, New Mexico has a very low compulsory education age limit. I believe they can drop out at 12. This means that any child in the upper grades who misbehaves can be kicked out of school so that if they're going to stay, they have to behave. Otherwise, they are bounced. Well, of course, they stay and behave. But in our state and elsewhere where they know they cannot be kicked out, they misbehave and they disrupt the whole educational process so that they frustrate the very purpose of compulsory education. And this is the way it always has been. If you're going to have compulsory education supposedly for the education of children, what you're doing is to destroy the education of children. You put it on the wrong basis. 
Well, our time is past due, so we stand this way.